1: Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1081. Oh, let's just jump right into the ID10T community corkboard events at ID10T.com. Like Jay, who writes, So my wife wrote a book. Well, three. The first two of the Hidden Pearl Saga are available on Amazon and Google, and the third will be available on August 1st, 2020. These books follow a young protagonist, Zoe. She lives in a space station above a post-apocalyptic Earth who finds a journal connected to someone in the past. She discovers that the origin of magic wasn't what she expected. The journal sets her upon a quest for magical items that can change the future of Earth. She meets allies and enemies along the way and must figure out whom she can trust. Just search for M.P. Starkweather. Um she's been working super hard on these. I would love for other people to enjoy these as much as she enjoyed writing them. Thank you so much for sharing Jay. Uh, I hope people check out your wife's book well, three books, uh, because they sound fantastic. So congratulations to her on writing, writing one book is hard. Writing three books is amazing. (laughs) I wrote a book like 10 years ago and I'm like, I don't think I need to write another book. It's a long, it's a process. It is a real long process. So congratulations, MP Starkweather. Um, this episode is Gavin Rossdale of Bush. The okay, so the band Bush is very. Uh, it 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 anchors me into a very incredible period uh, of my life. I had just kind of started working for MTV. I had just kind of started working for K Rock in Los Angeles. And when Sixteen Stone dropped, um, that that album had so many hit songs on it, and I just so associate that album. And the guitar riffs on that album, with being in the station at K Rock as a however old I was, twenty something, uh, and it just—I don't know—it just anchors me in a really incredible time of in my life. And so the album is very special to me, and uh, and I'm a fan of the band. And it was it, Gavin was such a lovely chap to talk to. Chap, he's a lovely chap to talk to, but just a very nice man. And, uh, and I'm so glad we had this opportunity to – because Bush has a new album, which is out now. It is out as of the posting of this podcast. just came out July 17th, 2020. It's called The Kingdom. So go pick it up. And um, at the very end of the podcast, Gavin plays – uh, plays a Bush song, plays one of the Bush songs from 16 Stones. So uh, it was just a super, super, super fun chat. And uh, even if you, wh- whether or not you listened, whether or not you uh, scratched up your 16 Stone CD from the CD case, the in-case CD case booklet that was in the front seat of your car, that hopefully, like now people fiddle with their phones, But in the 90s, in the 1900s, we used to almost get into car accidents by grabbing the CD case that would fly off the seat onto the floor. That was a thing you weren't supposed to do in the 1900s to prevent uh, so you wouldn't get in a car accident. But anyway, very enjoyable podcast number 1081 with Mr. Gavin Rossdale. Roll the thing.
0: Initiating ID10T protocol.
1: kids hanging in there uh
2: they're doing great they they've been away with their mom um we started off the quarantine thing together and then they went away with their mom and um and so i began the assignment part of school which was this this is the hidden this silent beginning which was like the chaos of like three boys two older boys were like here's your assignments you know i'm gonna leave the room good luck doing those assignments you know, it was so, <laughs> that first week was nuts and like all i kept thinking was like you know um at my kids school they were like you haven't done any hoarding yet you haven't i was like no why what was no so i go there and everyone's leaving with the toilet paper so i just like kept on going going shopping and, and stocking my uh stuff up all the time with um like the freezer up with stuff so that the kids, so they get food and we'd sit around every night and I'd be like, this could be the last of the electricity, okay guys? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I bought all the candles in town and, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So always going to happen. So then we did that. Then, then they bought, um, I did one week of um, the organized one, you know what I mean? The, the sort of, the online school. Mm-hmm. So then I was like patrolling the hallway like a sort of ex-musician Teacher, you know, <laughs> just wandering the hallways, you know, sort of, you know, just checking in on things. And then I was getting really, I was getting, I was suffered uh, emotional abuse at the hands of my eleven-year-old, who was telling me that my English way of doing long division is not right, even though my answer was right and his wasn't. Was
1: you like, know, the, yeah, you, you should show. Yeah, <laughs> if your kid discovers uh, another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd, you're done. Um, but the, the idea that there's a new math and a new way to solve math problems, I have friends who are educators who have written books to teach parents how to understand like the screwy new math and how it works because it is entirely different from how we were taught growing up.
2: Yeah. I think the answer is Google.
1: Yeah. The answer is Google. But that's the thing I always wonder, like, how would I... I can't imagine what school would have been like if literally the answer to everything was in my pocket at all times. I, I just can't, I remember having to check out books and, Oh, they weren't available. So I had to wait. So a report was late. Cause I couldn't get the book. I should have tried to check it out sooner. I mean, can you even fathom what it would be like to be a kid with the sum total of human knowledge in your pocket at all time?
2: Well, I've been thinking further to that. Like, you know, people, there's a friend of mine who's giving birth in two weeks time and, uh, can you imagine all these kids um, growing up who just think that wearing a mask is just a normal sort of accoutrement? You know, we used to think like, you know, cool belts were the thing. Now it's like yeah. having a cool mask, you know? Yes. Um, yeah.
1: Oh, they'll, they'll be, fa- yes, the fashion, they'll get, they'll get fashion. There'll be, uh, you know, there'll be Gucci masks. There will be, you know, Michael Kors masks, I'm sure. Yeah, someone
2: bought me, someone gave me very kindly um, the, um, you know, Virgil Abloh um, Off-White Mm-hmm. off-white thing, which is a great brand. A little overpriced. You know, I bought it for my kids. A little overpriced. 600 bucks for a t- uh, sweatshirt. A little overpriced. But fair play. He's like in the world of fashion and doing all that. So I don't mind that. But um, I did notice the gift, because the little price was 100 bucks for the mask. And I was like, now that's cynical. That's that's <laughs> cashing in on Corona. Come on now. Give it away. Give them away. Let everybody wear off-white masks. I just didn't yeah. see the the... It must have cost at least three dollars to make
1: and probably three dollars
2: maybe probably. four maybe they're going crazy, crazy so i'm like that's a markup come on
1: yeah i mean i know i know people who are selling them for almost nothing who are at home cutting up fabric and making them by hand Right. Who are making them with their hands and they're selling them for like fifteen dollars? So yeah. I mean, you know, you're you, you pay, you're paying for brand a little bit. You know what I mean? It's just it's just it's just capitalism. You're just paying for capitalism. No, absolutely. I just thought there could be one respite.
2: You know, take one deep breath during the corona. Nope, no, no, no. Still a chance to get people where they're down.
3: Well, people lose their jobs.
2: If- people lose their jobs. But you know what? A seven hundred percent markup. It's all good. It's all good. When, it's all when fa- you, it's fashion.
1: When you tour again, is there going to be like at the merch table, like <laughs> are there are going to be masks with the t-shirts and all the, there are going to be like tour masks. Hell yeah. Hazmat suits. I'm going to have entire hazmat suits, you know? That's a fantastic um, idea. Yeah. Can you, were you You were supposed were supposed to be touring as we speak? I'm always supposed to be touring. Yeah. I I'm always supposed to be touring.
2: And uh, so it's a bit of ironic because I'm, I'm, um I uh, yeah, I couldn't obviously, you know, whatever. And um, but it's it's been had a weird effect on my body. The the backs of my shoulders, like the lower of my shoulder blades, are beginning beginning to sort of decompress to a degree. You know, because I'm so used to travel, so I'm used to moving. So the other side of it is is um is that yeah, i meant to be on tour, but it's weird for my body to not be traveling, not doing stuff.
1: Yeah. And it, it I wonder how it'll be to, because I, I it's obviously, a, I don't think a switch is going to flip and all of a sudden. We're just going to be in, in high energy mode again. I think it will be gradual. But I do wonder, like all the people who are so used to the momentum of go, 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 and then slamming on the brakes. If it'll, be, if it'll take a little while to work back up to that momentum? Or maybe, do you think you might decide by the end of all this, like, I don't know if I need to tour all the time, maybe just some of the time?
2: I don't tour. I tour like, we tour like four, five months of the year. Oh, that's not bad. But it feels like it. Well, it's, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot. Um, but I'm never away for more than three weeks or so. Three weeks is the limit that I go away for. Yeah. But then in the summers, I tend to do a couple of months, you know, just on those tours. But
1: Is it still... F- Fun do you, do do you have a sense of like ah this is something we have to do because we're putting out music and it's good to tour or do you genuinely do it because you like it
2: could you imagine if my answer was like yeah i got to tell you man it sucks <laughs> every minute i got to tell you, you imagine?
1: but there yeah, must be people do, who it, do, it because do it for they the feel money
2: i do it for the money the semi fame <laughs> the lukewarm catering and
3: devil.
2: Uh, like limited bank. limited selection of alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that never changes because my ride hasn't changed since twenty years. <laughs> so no, um, I love. It. I mean, I can't. I I've seen people doing that like that. I've seen yeah. people on stage who are effectively kind of phoning it in or something. But I just, I mean, that'd be so horrible. I mean, I'm obsessed about it. I love it so much. I couldn't imagine. I mean that's why my first incarnation of my band kind of disintegrated withered away. It just sort of uh, nothing really happened. Nobody left. It just sort of we looked and all of a sudden there wasn't a bench for us to sit on. Nobody wanted to go away. One guy, guitar player Nigel, he just missed his first kid he felt growing up, you know, the first sort of 5 6 years of their life and so then it was a put a delay on the touring until get a bit of time at home. Then it's like, is that enough time? So then I did a side project. No, is that enough time Oh, do you want to do after this band institute? Do you want to do it now? No, no, no. And I was like, oh, so I did a solo record. I mean, um, singers and bands doing solo records, please don't, please don't, don't. No one cares, no one wants it. We'll wait for your band to sort the shit out.
1: No one we wants a solo record? We no don't think. want it. It's
2: halfway house. Now, I did a solo record, you know, which is exactly as I lived through this experience. I speak from the, from the, the point of um, the absolute experience of doing the wrong. It wasn't the wrong thing. It was like I wasn't left any choice um, because they didn't want to tour anymore. So what I should have done then is just got, my, got the new version of Bush saying, hey, whoever wants to do it, you know, the bass player wanted to do it for one cycle, one, one tour the guitar player didn't. I was like, "This is chaos." So I'm still hungry as a, as a, as a you know, kid on uh, one of the Lord of the Flies. You know, I'm still as hungry as that Tom and Kank and Castaway. I feel that hunger, and I love it. So there's no way to do it. I mean, you know, there's some people that are trying to get on that slot that you got. That if you don't you know, deliver, I mean, I think the, the the adage of being as good as your last song, last release, last show, it just holds true. You don't you find that your last stand up is like that's where it's at. That's how good you are. Well, no but, but, I was really go to the Beacon theater four years ago. I was
1: amazing. I was on <laughs> fire that night. But I you know, for me, having done both, I it, but it's different for stand-ups because like I need to theaters are fun once the act is in a very presentational mode. right. but I, but I like being in clubs because they're very intimate. You're almost standing in the crowd. I can riff with people, I can work on new material. I can pivot when you're, when you're doing a theater, you, you can't really talk to people in the audience because people up there don't, can't see the person in the front and they can't. So I don't know. I mean, is the experience for you different in terms of, do do you like the energy of an intimate room versus a, versus a theater versus like an arena? Like, is there, is there too many people or there not enough people like, or is it all different?
2: Right. Uh, I think that in, in, um, the balance that I always try and find is no matter how, wherever the, whatever the size of the room, um, we you know, play from um, you know, really big, bigger places to smaller places. Sometimes there's like one offs, there's like surprise shows. So there's all different sizes. Um, the trick is for me personally, as an entertainer, performer, is to just establish intimacy, establish connection with whoever, whatever the size of the audience, there's all, that's my only sort of MO is just to not be disconnected from the crowd and, uh, to find a way to just, right. To connect with the crowd, you know, and, and really, you know, you understand that as a performer, you just is a, there's sort of, there's a, there's a hidden wavelengths, you know, that you can absail into someone's like psyche in that, in the space, you can get it or you completely miss it. And you can't have any connection with them. And, uh, that's a disconnected show. Like for instance, what I don't like is really high stages. Right. High stage is the worst. People are like down the pits, but like really down. It's, you, I try my best and I'm, I've done a few movies, I don't want to boast, but I've done a few movies so I can, I, know. I, can, I can unravel the, unroll the thespian side of my life, you know, and just be like, I'm so connected to you, but I can't see you, you're like below my ankles. You're 15 totally feet agree. below my ankles, but my goodness, are we connected slightly. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's weird to look down oh, at Oh, it's people. terrible. Yeah. So, um, But that's the gist of it. And, uh, and, and the other thing that I love to do is, um, you know, I'm quite an un, uninhibited performer. You know, I like that to be uninhibited and be very really free, is to be as energized and committed and looking for connection as if you're playing to 100 people, as if you're playing to 50,000 people. Absolutely. And it's so much fun because when you're the smaller the venue, you, you, you can kind of make people feel a bit, um, a bit awkward to having to be dealing with you. Like, oh my God, this is a lot of performance in a small <laughs> space. I better like, you know, I've got to loosen up. My date's <laughs> going to like leave me. You know what I mean? You, you'd sort of force people to be involved. You know, and that's why, especially when I go in the crowd, um, I go in the crowd because I like breaking that, the wall between the stage and the audience. And I like going to the back of the room where people can't believe that you've made the effort, you know, they're up there sort of, you know, texting or something. I don't know what they're doing. Right. And uh, they just, they can't, you know, you go up there and they're like in their seats and, you know, the slightly, you know, the, the, you know, some, some people find it hard to get out of their seats quickly. They trip, they knock over popcorn, drinks, beers. And, um, but the, there's a real, there's a real. um, It's like that. The energy wavelength. It's like me going on the crowd is just sort of plugging everyone's energy into the wall socket. Everyone's like, <laughs> and, you know, it's like, uh, it's really good. It's really fun.
1: You said something that I, I would love to try to explore a little bit because I, it, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. But you said, "Oh, you're only as good as your last thing," you know, whether it's music or stand up or whatever. And I am, I, I am. I feel like there's this constant struggle between because in the, in any creative pursuit, it can be very difficult to quantify the ultimate question, which a lot of people want to answer, which is how am I doing? Am I doing well? And when you work (laughs) in a very linear job, okay, you get to this point and then you get a raise and a promotion and then you get this and then you get a parking space and then you get a watch and then, you know, it's very linear, but what we do is not linear at all. And I feel like we can get into a lot of trouble as performers by, picking the wrong things to define whether or not we're doing a good job. You know, we look at a lot of external cues, but I feel like the internal cues are just as important how we're perceiving what we're doing. And so how to navigate that, because, you know, to what you said, ah, you know, it's true in the music business, you're as good as your last thing, but is another way to look at that? Like, yeah, but that means that you could still be a second away from another big thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's never really over if you continue the journey. I don't know. Does any of that make no. sense?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, no, it's a precipice I and mean, it's a tightrope. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're continually, you know, for me, I'm always a semitone away from disaster. So I think we're always on that precipice. I mean, life is like that. Driving a cars like that. You know, you're, you're five foot from going the other direction, getting killed by another car. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. But just in terms of how we define success for ourselves, mm. you know, it's, it's so easy to just look at the external stuff like cash, uh, how, how many people showed up, how much money, how much notoriety, how much blah, blah, blah. But you know, the internal stuff, like the fact that you are just as passionate playing for 50 people versus 50,000 people is a great, that's good because if you only had a very narrow way to define how you probably. You only got
2: switched on after five thousand people. Anyone below five thousand? Nah, <laughs> it's a total failure. You guys are like, you're okay, but you know,
1: <laughs> four four nine nine nine, no thanks. Five thousand is a magic number. Five thousand and up. But you know, there are but there are people that, and and I also think it's interesting that your band got to a certain point where they're like, yeah 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 yeah, we 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 get it. We've had success. We've played stadiums, we've done everything, but now there's life stuff. And you never think about the life stuff when you're in your 20s. You just think about playing for stadiums, I would imagine, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose they're more responsible for me. They had kids earlier. Um, I'm lucky, you know, I can bring my kids out on the road. And um, I don't know, there's a sort of a weird side of me that even though it's it is hard and challenging to be away from them. I'm with them half the time because of, you know, my divorce, but, um, it's what I do. And I think that when you have kids, you know, I wanted them to join my life, not my, my life to join them, you know? And so therefore that's, and especially now it's not, you know, the you know, streaming. I mean, we, we both remember the times when musicians could exist by selling records and now that's a sort of a, a Sort of, I don't know. That's a that's a storybook. That's a history class now. <laughs> Let me, sit down, class. Gather around. <laughs> the time. A ye, ye old record stores. Ye oldie Tower Records. Oh yeah, that doesn't even mean anything anymore. I mean, no. If I, I said to my kids, I mean, find to the, the fact that that they, you know, all the powers that be, which is in my case Apple, um, there's nowhere to put a CD. Yeah, I mean, maybe in the car. And even then, it's sort of like, you know, it's like here's the vintage box you can put in,
1: but it's, there's no, there's no, there's nowhere to play CD. I do miss the days of going to like Tower Records and then just looking at album covers, like just looking at the right. covers as part of the experience for whether or not you were going to buy something. Obviously, you'd have bands that you liked, but then you would see a particularly cool or provocative cover or something really artistic. You go, I don't know what this is, but the vibe of this cover is so good. good. I'm gonna try it. And yes. you might actually like it. Sometimes. That's what happened with
2: the Pixies to me, the Surf Rosa. That was how that cover worked for me. That's how oh, I yes. discovered the Pixies. Because that cover was, I don't know if you remember the kind of the, the flamenco dancer girl and the side shot of her. It's iconic. Um, so I used to uh, what I used to do, and I miss a lot is when I'd get a record of bands I like or my favorite band I was into, you know, the the ceremony of getting back, you bring home the, the vinyl, you look at the artwork, you open it up, and I'd always go straight to their thanks. And I listen to the words, and I'd look at the thanks, and be like, who's hanging out with my band? Who do I wish I was? Let me just see. Does anyone you know and you know, I've never made it. Onto those thank you, um, I never knew anyone who was in bands. And then by the time I knew people in bands, people weren't doing it anymore, you know?
1: Oh, they didn't, so when you when you started releasing albums, did you not do, was there no space to do thank yous anymore? Oh, no, you- we did, oh my God, it was torture. I had to like do everyone I ever met in my life, you know? And then it
2: was like, and I always remember my first girlfriend, who's uh, my first love, Lindsay, and I was with her for five years. And, and I put Miss Thurlow on there because I thought it was cute and she was really mad at me about it. Like, this is like you know, 16 stuff. I was like, How can you be mad about But <laughs> She was mad at me,
1: she was always mad at me, especially because you, you like, you took the care to like, Oh, I put some extra thought into this, this is gonna yes. be extra sweet. Yes, and it's like, Wait, what? But you,
2: why did you do that? Oh, it's like, Oh boy,
1: and I couldn't change it. Don't worry, it probably won't sell anything anyway. 10 minute <laughs> album later. Oh my god, well, it really I, I worked at I worked at K Rock from ninety five to ninety eight, which was the <laughs> Oh, that was my time. Yeah, that was the peak era for K Rock like directing pop music. I remember yeah. like yeah. walking by Kevin Isn't Reilly, it funny? Uh, I mean, that
2: was like with M T V and the juggernaut of that was just it just defined defined everything, defined culture. Crazy.
1: Yeah, I worked for both of them. I I I did a show on MTV called Singled Out. It was a dating show. And I worked at K-Rock simultaneously. And the the influence that both of them had in the nineties on pop culture was mind-blowing because it it just everything's changed. But I remember hearing you could hear a song in Kevin Weatherly's office, and then a week later it was in heavy rotation. And that band would be huge. Like it was it was such a magical thing to witness because it was yeah. very like in the movies, like you hear a song on the radio and the next thing it's climbing up the charts. Like I got to see that happen. Well, he's Can
2: gone I, he going to run Spotify or something, right? Is he running Spotify now? He's gone to some, some huge, huge job uh, with Spotify yeah. in North America. Yeah. But so that, that weird. I mean, he's the one that, you know, there are not that many people in your life, you know. Um, there's a few people in my life, integral people, and he's very central to to my life and his um you know support of the, of the band um was really special
1: yeah when kevin got behind something he was i i loved the guy he put me on the air i, I came on to do an interview and then he was like hey do you want to do do you want to be a dj and i go sure and so he put me but i was on midnight to five but those those songs on Sixteen Stone, to me. Did you have to be there? Did you, were you there from, from midnight to five? I was literally the only person in the entire studio because it was so it was it was such a weird. They didn't even track ratings from midnight to five, so they, there was no call screener. There was no way. It was just me in that you know on whatever that ninth floor in Burbank. You know, like that building in Burbank, and that was it. How many days was, a week was that? Um, it was three or four days, three or four nights a week, but I was like 22. So like I had, you know, like it didn't, wasn't weird staying up all night, but it right. it, was, it was an incredible time to be there to just witness how much music had changed. And when I left in 98, music pivoted away right. and sort of went more like Limp Bizkit, you yeah. know, like rap rock mm. or whatever but i i love the period of time that i was there and uh it all, all those songs are so they're they're so special to me because it, it was just such a magical time right, right. we actually played cds uh <laughs> you had to pull cds and it, like carts and stick right, right. so how did you how did did how did kevin did was did kevin discover
3: who,
2: who was um, i just was signed to a label uh, to Toronto Records in the Valley, and uh, I came from London. Um, people didn't know whether this was a legit um, labels, legit situation, but I was sort of hovering around labels in England, not really. We weren't getting signed. Um, people weren't prepared to take that leap of faith. And, um, and I think at that time anyway, it was sort of a lot of uh, the whole Britpop scene was going on. Right swayed with a big really big band at the time, blur oasis, so we were like an anomaly anyway, we were like wanna be the pixies and so so then, to do a record company, do a record deal in a foreign country like they did in um with four a d in london, I saw it as a I saw it as a chance to um i don't know to be in the same i thought something was happening to them to us what was happening to them, and so um we, we actually had the record in it. It went to uh, Hollywood Records. It was our distributor. And this, this guy, Frank Wells, was killed in a helicopter crash. They one of the heads of Disney. Um, and he was very sad. And um, suddenly we had no one looking after the band. And there was a great quote that someone said about So Not only are there no singles on this record, there's no album tracks. So they dropped us. Yeah, they dropped us. And um, so then I went back to work and I worked for three months um, back in London. I hadn't been, I'd been to America once, but I, 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 no, I hadn't been to America then. I just assigned, made a record. And then I, so for me, I I'm so used to failure and so used to struggling that, oh, you make a record and you can have a cooked breakfast every morning with a catering budget. And so you don't have to eat when you go home and um, you make a record. I was like, great. And then we went back to work. I was like, well, that's, life of a musician you know it's just like a sort of one-way ticket to nowhere slowly and um then they called us up and what happened was uh my label had got it played at k-rock it picked up by um ted field over at interscope records heard it on k-rock and then him and jimmy ivy and so it was ted field's project basically and um and then that was the end of that then then K Rock that blew up. Then we had the power of Interscope. And then we had MTV was helping us with the videos, you know. And um, that was the juggernaut. Was that amazing? I still often think about MTV and it's such a shame they don't play music videos. Man, if
1: they managed if they played music videos now, people would be watching it all the time. I don't know it, the reason. So there, are, I can, I can, I have two answers for you for that. If you want, what to know. I think it's
2: amazing. One, but before before you tell me, isn't it the genius concept about MTV? I only realised year, years later that we all paid for programming that wasn't even guaranteed to get on there. So we'd like either spend between you know two hundred fifty thousand It's like so much money. That was a low video in the nineties. So say you only spent three hundred grand on a video, which was a, that was like a taking it easy video, yeah. You know? Right. In those terrible numbers, now we we, we do anything for three hundred grand, um, and uh, and then you. You'd pay that and then you'd sit there just, please, play it, please do our programming. (laughs) You know, nowadays if you spend 200 grand on a program on Netflix, they're going to show it. That's it. We'd spend it on a four-minute clip and that wouldn't always get played. Terrible. Wow, genius for them. But so go on, what was your theory of...
1: Well, it's just that, so so I I believe that there were, if I understand the way that worked, number one... First of all, I can tell you that having done a television show on MTV for a long time, music video shows were the lowest rated shows. Because they, if more people had watched them, then they would have programmed them more. But when it started in the 80s, it was such a revolutionary thing. And even then people said, well, attention spans, like the kids, Gen X, they're fucking idiots. You know, their attention spans, they're watching these three minute clips. But attention spans got shorter and shorter and shorter. So not only did they rate low, but at a certain point MTV started to realize that they couldn't actually monetize just music video shows. They needed to own IP. So they started creating shows that they could create and license internationally, I imagine. And so it it, it was a combination of those two things. But even in the nineties, people would say like, ah, your fucking show, like MTV used to play music videos. I remember that in the nineties, people say that. And now you know, I don't know, MTV's probably 40, about 40 years old. So MTV to me feels like a 40-year-old guy like, hey, what are you kids like? Let me see what I can make for you kids now, you know? so that So it just, it all changed. But you're right, the idea that you would invest a quarter of a million dollars and cross your fingers.
0: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey,
1: I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: I think, was Everything Zen the first track that K-Rock played? Yep. Yes. I remember it so vividly. That first guitar riff from that song, it just made me feel like, oh, I love this, I'm at work. And, um, but the fact that you basically had a fucking gold mine, you had a brick of solid gold that at first people were like, there's not even anything on here. And it turned out that literally everything on that album popped. Five number one singles. But that was, that's
2: Hollywood records, you know, that's Hollywood records. So sometimes when people, you know, they, um, I guess Disney began the label, they might not have hired the, 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 you know, they might not have got whoever the, famous a&r people right that we lived with
1: right and so when it started when it turned and it sounded like it turned like once it started to turn it sounded like it turned pretty quickly uh what did the momentum change of that feel like to go back to london to just work a regular job for three months and then all of a sudden like oh shit we're like we're a big band I, I,
2: i worked the regular job um and and then and then I came out through the summer, and then I came out to LA. Um, and I played uh, this? Um, what's a club called on on on, um, on uh, San, um, Santa Monica? Um. Oh shoot me! I can't think about it. But the power. Now they weren't used to having bands there. It was like a nightclub I don't know. Um, I keep the want to the gaslight, but it's not. But I'll, anyway, whatever. Sure, someone will will correct us, but um, yeah. So came out, and then I had the one trip to LA, and that's when it had begun on the radio. They're like, "Your record's been playing on K Rock," and I didn't know. What, I was like, "What's K Rock?" You know, I was in it. <laughs> So uh, it's only when it came out in so November, and then we came on tour in in the January or the February, brought the record out in December. So it was really insane. Um, the momentum and it just was like being put into a, an incredible movie of of, like, of what it might be like. You know, from the first show at CBGB, this was a proper first um, tour date. And uh, before it was the John Bavata store. And when it was just literally the stinky, pissy club. And um, I remember not being able to do the soundtrane when we couldn't get back in because it was so packed. That's what I was like. I'd never had that. And it was the first time an audience I played to that had heard the songs and knew the songs. You know, I always played and just sort of like, you're going to like this one. Here's one song you've never heard. You know, I played with pubs in Camden. Here's another one you've never heard.
1: Oh, dear. But you start playing shows where people come in and they're instantly connected already. I mean, like that's a whole other, that's a whole other. Yeah, it
2: was amazing. That was like, you know, and that thing where you start a you start a song, so zen, da da da, da and we yeah. You're like, oh my god, we're in a movie. Keep playing,
1: don't stop. Do you do you find uh, that because those those feelings in our life can be, you know, especially when you're when you're young and those things happen for the first time. Do you always feel like I got to chase that first feeling, you know, or do you, are you, are you good about like, you know, like I'm, I'm moving forward. I'm not going to look in the rearview mirror. Like what's the balance when you've been in a band for, for a long time? Oh, I mean, as in, I mean. Cause it can be like a drug, right? Like that feeling, that adrenaline, that, you know that's probably a significant part of why we're all performers is that, yeah. that sort of rush, you know, I, I do it. Like, you no, know, I do it. It's sometimes funny when I
2: do, um, I mean, we do it for the thrill. Right. And, uh, sometimes when I've been going, I remember being in New York and going to do like Letterman or something, whatever, um, whichever show. And, um, I'll be at a traffic light, you know, and I've got that sort of adrenaline side, you know, I don't want, I don't want to screw up on the show legendary uh, host blah 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 and I look out on the street and see someone at a crosswalk completely relaxed face got lunch chilling out it's a nice day and I go why why I gotta be why I gotta be this guy why I gotta be pressure guy why I always gotta be pressure well I gotta go to work little pressure. Well, look at that guy he's gonna work he's having a break he's having a sandwich He's got no pressure. Everything's good. And then I just realized that I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie, you know, uh, um, pressure junkie, you know, and I put myself consistently in situations as does any performer, um, where the, uh, you know, you can go straight into an idolatry or you can be like, whoa, what happened to that guy? You know, you're right. And you, you, you caused that line. And uh, I, I suppose I like it. You know, I love doing movies. I love acting. And I, nothing is more fun when we go and roll on camera and action. And you just know that the whole set is primed towards you as an actor and whoever you're acting with to deliver in that moment. And do not mess it up. Don't mess your line. Don't be uh, disconnected from the other actors. Be good. Be interesting. And it's that moment. Right. Here we go. And I, I guess I like that pressure.
1: Yeah, and I, but I imagine that what comes from that is the focus, right? It's like when you're when you when your hackles get up and you feel the adrenaline, there's like a tremendous amount of focus that happens mm-hmm. as well, right? But then yes. it's keeping all of the other neurotic stuff out of the, <laughs> out
3: yeah, of yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um when you're touring a new album, how do you know because I cause the new album got postponed obviously because of COVID, but it's July, right? The new album's coming out yeah, in July. July. And so does it feel, does, does writing songs feel the way it's always felt? Do, do, you, do, do you feel like it's evolved in some way or do, do you have the same struggles with it or have you gotten better at some stuff? I mean, I, it still
2: has the same thrill. You know, like when I write a song, to me, the, the beauty of a great lyric, a great melody that sits... Uh, top on top of um, some really some chord sequences that you like that to me is it's so wild because there's 12 notes but it's an infinite range arra- you know assortment of um, uh, uh, arrangements for those notes you know and you can go from Mozart to Slipknot and they all use the same notes <laughs> they use the same notes
3: such a great and so
2: I find it really magical and really mystical and uh, so I just love it I mean i I look back at some of the songs, you know, I've been lucky enough to write. They, um, they, you, know, they, they, they you know, they they got stuff to them, you know, they they got value. And then there's new stuff that I write on this record where they also have value. You know, I just have an intrinsic sense of when a song is done. I have an intrinsic belief in if a song is any good or not. And um, so I think my instinct has gotten better and I hope I sing better. I hope I played better, but it's not to say that when I recorded certain songs I didn't do them justice. And, you know, it's just sort of I'm just a self-made, you know, wandering minstrel with a band. You know, so I have like an ancient job. You know, just I just happen to be on Zoom with a uh, with a sort of uh, with a beautiful acoustic guitar here, just like.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just don't think there are any, you know, because you said, ah, I don't know if people should do a solo album or whatever. But I just don't think there are any mistakes because I think every choice that you make leads you to the point you're at now and sets the oh, table for, sure. for whatever it is. I just there. mean
2: that, that, for instance, the solo record I made, I was so proud of it. And I got so many songs on there that I prefer, if they'd been Bush songs, I'd feel more connected to just drop them into the set sometimes. So I just, it just holds me back a little bit. It shouldn't, it doesn't matter. They're just songs. but. um you know, to create a body of work and I have all Bush, like 10 Bush records now and then eight Bush records, this would be about eight, and then two other records. I just wish there's other two because it's the same, same writer and same person and everything like that. And, you know, look, I tried to just on the solo record just minimize the, on the one solo project I went heavier on the Institute record, detuned heavy, sort of um, heavy metal stuff produced by Paige Hamilton from Helmet. And then on my solo record, I collaborated with loads of people and um and tried to use less guitars for emphasis. And everyone's like, Where's the guitars?
3: Oh, no, no, no.
1: <laughs> hey, let me try something good. new. What the fuck? Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean like so I'm really I am proud of those records. I don't mind having done like that. I mean, as you say, I do believe in a very Buddhist sense, whilst not being a Buddhist, that it's just all it's all we're all on this this mad journey we're meant to be on and uh the rough times are meant to be there to illuminate the good times or to inform the good times and bad songs are there to be, to get to the good ones. And um, this is how it goes, you know, and, and whilst, you know, we're talking about this whole thing of making every show amazing, good, is that you can't guarantee that everything's as good. You can't be the same, consistently the same, you know, one night you to be funnier on Friday than you were on Sunday. Absolutely. Um, I actually, by the way, wish there weren't any gigs on Sundays because everyone's slightly different, wrong mindset. Everyone's like, you know, it's Sunday. Yeah, no, I my, never I, I didn't go. do my homework. Yeah, it's like
1: a ten percent less. Got to go like, to work Why tomorrow. You on Sunday? <laughs> yeah, you have to go to work the next day. It's not like yeah, Sunday shows people I, are just I, not as free. There's are me- you know, more mellow. You know, it's like okay, everyone sit down. Let's all sit down. Or maybe they're just tired from Friday and Saturday, so Sunday's like wrapping it up for them. It's like <laughs> yeah, oh, some okay. other band got their
2: whole chutzpah on the Friday and Saturday, and we're screwed. Yeah. We just got yeah. the, we got the dredges. <laughs> Thanks for that.
1: Oh, I gave you my old socks and a really terrible T-shirt. <laughs> so as we're because I think I have you for ten more minutes, and I think uh, are you are you going to do a song or do you are you going to record it separately? No, I, they they asked me if I would do a song for you.
2: As uh, you know.
1: it was very yeah. tough to. They said, oh, uh, you know, uh, Gavin will play, a, you know, any Bush song you want. And I go, I don't, th- there's like, so many of them are so meaningful to me. I mean, everything Zen is so meaningful because it, like, it helped define that era that I worked at K-Rock. But then, you know, Machine Head just seemed like, oh, it's like, a, it's such a fun song. I'd love to hear acoustically. But Come Down is also a song that I fucking adore. So, I- I don't know. Is there is there one that is more particularly meaningful to you that you like? Does anyone ever ask you what you want to play? No, not really. But um, um,
2: (laughs) I I, well, I took the opportunity because I I thought I never haven't done machine head much, so I tried. I did a sort of a version. I love it. I did a version of it. It's not. It's not. I mean, I can't. I'm not going to be able to do the. I've done it where I do acoustic. I do the whole line. (laughs) <laughs> I was playing yesterday and I was just like, I don't know, does this sound a bit like, you know, um, not mindful of the fact there's no one else playing with me, I'm playing on an acoustic, you know, it's like, no, this sounds,
1: so anyway, so I, I, did, I worked up a little arrangement right. of machine if you're head. happy If you're happy with that, I'm more than happy with that. And yeah, I've never yeah. done it
2: before, I've never done it before, so I did, when I did the machine head one before, it had a certain style. And then when I played it yesterday, I was like, I wonder if something else. So I've done a different um, different arrangement of it kind of thing.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat
3: Breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Tied to a wheel, fingers gotta feel. Bleed through a tonic-case caseline. Spin on a whim, slide to the right. Felt you like electric light for our life. Machine head, the rest, green to red. Machine head, got a machine head, the rest, green to red. Walk from my machine. Walk from my machine. Land, spell and the rest, green to red, I walk from my machine, I walk for my machine.
1: 50,000 people screaming
3: (laughs) in our new era
1: of Zoom concerts. Uh. (laughs) 50,000. I thought that is that sounds fucking it's so great to I mean because the song I love the song but it's so fun to hear the chord changes like so clearly. Right. It's It's such a I mean, I know it's a harder song, but it's like it's like hard more hardcore, but it's a pretty song when you do right, it that right way.
2: way. It's it's. I wish I was slightly better at playing it really clearly and perfectly, but it's just it's more meant to be sort of classically, you know.
1: No, it's beautiful, especially the little breakdown going up the net, Ah, it was it was perfect. Um, what, so last two questions, number one, uh, what are you happy about right now? What are you joyful about in this time when it's so easy to be, you know, negative when we're all trapped seeing bad news all the time? Um, I'm,
2: I'm really joyful about having this record for people to, to fall in love with, you know, that's, that's really it. So it's, yeah. uh, I mean, it's such a luxurious feeling to be, um, be a creative person with um something that you do all lined up ready to go (laughs) so i just know that 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 provides usually a record for me is like two years of two years of work you know two years of um, of stuff that's going to happen for me so that is really exciting um and i ironically i don't know what's going to happen so sometimes i get a bit concerned about it but ultimately you know, to have twelve new songs for people that love the band to fall in love with. That's a that's a that's a that's a lot to be joyful about.
1: That's fantastic. And then lastly, uh for people, you know, who are trying to find their own thing or who are creatively struggling with how they define success, just really quickly, how how do you define success or how would you tell people to healthily define success?
3: Um well, success is, 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 is i mean,
2: there's a sense of achievement in success, um, of course, but ultimately, success is the same thing as happiness. You know, it's—I think the the biggest, um, the the most challenging thing for all of us to consider is that, um, is, is that when we take ourselves out of the moment. It's so much. It's so easy to get sort of wistful and depressed about the past, or concerned about the future and how it's you know how these things you have no control over, and so that depression comes from the future. So it's so difficult saying the present. So being uh, productive as on a minimal level as possible, being productive, um, and feeling that gives a sense of self. Um, it can be as stupid as making your bed. It can be as, 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 as stupid as building a house, whatever. It's just a sense of self, self-worth. But it's also a sense of accepting you in the right position at the right time. And so much depression and sadness comes from um, uh, uh, projecting into the future and a bad image and a bad picture. So right. success is like really is absolutely living in the moment. If you can absolutely live in the moment, that's, 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 that's a very successful way to live.
1: Beautifully said. This was a wonderful conversation. I was such a great, I don't know. I was very excited to talk to you. You, you, wow. you know, I'm sure people give you these stories all the time, but your band was very much an integral part of my world and my, you know, like my career development at that time. And so it's, I, I, I have very uh, soft, warm and fuzzy feelings about it. So wow, I, I really appreciate you. And I thank you so much for taking the time, man. I, I wow. hope you're doing well and I hope you stay safe and healthy.
2: Likewise, thank
1: you. All right, take care.
0: ID twenty scanning complete. Enjoy your
1: burrito. Hey grown-ups, The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet.